Okay, the reading this evening is from Hebrews chapter 11, and it's verses 24 to 29, and that's um, on page 1,210 of the Red Church Bibles, if you'd like to follow that with me. Okay, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Nice to see you. Will you join me in praying that God would open the scriptures to us and would speak into our lives? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the life of Moses. Thank you for all that you accomplished through him and in him. And thank you for the scriptures. And we pray tonight, Lord, that you would open our hearts to the scriptures. We pray that you'd be free to speak into our lives. We want to grow close to you, Lord. We want to follow you faithfully. So please send your Holy Spirit. Anoint what I've got to say and help me as I speak. And help us all to hear your voice, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you come regularly in the evenings, you will know that we've been studying and will continue to study the life of Moses And we've been looking in particular at episodes from the book of Exodus. But tonight we're going to step back a bit and see a New Testament perspective. These very interesting little verses from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. By any reckoning, Moses has to be seen as a giant figure, not just actually of the Old Testament, in the whole panorama of the New Testament, take all the Bible together, Moses is a standout giant. Not only are the first five books of the scriptures attributed to him, but he leads God's people at a critical time in their history, leading them not only from slavery into the wilderness, but leading them in the wilderness for so many years. And I'm guessing that his assignment was not easy. I'm guessing that his time in leadership was mighty challenging. And just a little bit of imagination would reveal that to us, wouldn't it? Imagine the challenge of physically surviving in the wilderness for 40 years, the wilderness wanderings, lack of food, lack of water, lack of rest, it's kind of Bear grills eat your heart out, really. Survival special. 
the challenges of hostile regimes all around you, from woe to go, from the Pharaoh and the Egyptians chasing them out of Egypt, to the warring tribes of, you know, the Hittites, Perizzites, Amorites, Canaanites, etc., 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 to the challenge of leading the children of Israel, who were a grumpy lot, to the personal challenge of leading himself well. As he grew older, and it's impossible to think that he wasn't creaking a little bit by the end of his life, the challenges of self-leadership, getting yourself under control. It's not difficult to imagine, is it, that that was a challenge for Moses, that there might have been moments when he might have been tempted to say, dear God, please, when can I put my feet up? Dear God, what about a decent standard of living? Dear God, could I have a hassle-free couple of days? You know, that kind of thing. But to his dying day, Moses remained a person of faith, a person of integrity, a person who God spoke to as a friend, a person full of hope. He finished well. And I want to talk tonight about four decisions that Moses made which enabled him to do the race of life well and to finish well. And they're not that complex. They're pretty easy for me to highlight from this text. I think we'll understand them all. It's just a challenge of saying yes, Lord, to each of them. And I, I'm pretty certain that if each of us were to make four identical decisions, we would become more luminous in this dark world for Jesus Christ. So that's the path we've got before us. So would you turn with me to Hebrews 11? And it's such a short little passage, I'm going to read it again. Hebrews 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn wouldn't touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. And his first decision is this. He made a defining decision about his identity. He made a defining decision about his identity, and this was his decision. He wanted to be known as one of the people of God. In verse 24. By faith, when Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he wanted to be known as one of the people of God. So let me ask you this very simple question. What do you want to be known as? 
what do you want to be known as? It's a sort of um, interesting interview question that might come your way. What do you want to be remembered for? Or to bring it down to kind of everyday level, what is it that you'd like people to be saying about you? And the straightforward question is, have you resolved in your heart that you most want to be identified as belonging to Jesus Christ? Have you resolved in your heart to your own satisfaction in a private place before you even get out of bed in the morning and face the world or face yourself in the mirror that you want to be known as one of God's people, as a follower of Jesus Christ? Apparently, Moses had decided that. He wanted to be known as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I think that probably some people here would want to say, hang on, Rupert, wakey-wakey, Moses, Old Testament, Jesus Christ, New Testament, duh, chronologically, you got a bit mixed up. Well, not according to the writer of Hebrews, apparently. Look at verse 26, this chapter. He, Moses, regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ. Aha, interesting. As a greater value than the treasures of Egypt. So, I'm not twisting scripture when I say he decided to stand out for Christ. The moment, the moment you fess up as a Christian, you put your feet on solid ground. The moment you camouflage your faith, your foundations are fatally compromised. It's as simple as that. And it's all the more striking because for Moses, it would have been so easy to trade in life and pass himself off as Pharaoh's daughter. Because that was the assumed situation. That's what everyone looking at him thought that he was. But he chose instead to identify with the minority group, the slaves in the land, and that was bound to be costly. It was a massively costly decision for him. And friends, I wouldn't be surprised if to identify yourself as a follower of Christ will be costly for you. And we might remind ourselves just for a second of what he turned his back on. All the treasures, all the treasures of Pharaoh's palace. When I think about that, I think of personally about the treasures of Tutankhamun. And uh, when I was growing up in London, uh, Pharaoh's mask and the treasures of King Tut were on display at the British Museum. And even though it was thousands of years later, eight million people from up and down the country queued for days on end just to get a glimpse of the treasures of Pharaoh. Such were the immeasurable wealth and splendor. I um, looked up in an encyclopedia of what it was like, what the Egyptians' Pharaoh dynasty was like, what was like life like for Moses. So let me read you a little bit. Give, put us in the picture. The pharaohs were the rulers of ancient Egyptian dynasties between about 3000 BC and 30 BC, revered as gods by their subjects. The life of a pharaoh was marked by pampering, procreation, power, and prestige. Upon rising from his bed in the morning, the pharaoh would be taken to a separate room where servants with titles such as chief of scented oils and pastes for rubbing his majesty's body 
oversaw the Pharaoh's well-being. After cleansing the Pharaoh's servants cut his hair and fit him with a human hair wig. They applied his eye makeup using a dark shadow and a liner called coal. The servants dressed the Pharaoh in a linen kilt and added his jewelry, which usually included a large gold pendant on a wide neck chain. His morning routine completed, the Pharaoh was ready for the day ahead. Get the picture. And if you were Pharaoh or lived in his court, you could have anything you wanted in the known world. It was no problem. And we're told by this writer that Moses turned his back on all this. He literally walked out on it because he knowingly chose to identify with the slave people, the Hebrews. And just think about that for a minute. What power did they have? None. What possessions did they have? None. What influence did they have? None. The one thing he could be sure of was that he was going to be mistreated. But they had this one thing going for them. They're the people of God. Verse 25. They're the people of God. So if we choose to align ourselves with the people of God, it's not a bad choice, but it'll be costly if it means being mistreated, and it will. And how do I know that it will? Because Jesus warns his disciples that it will. He warns us precisely. He said, in this world you'll have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Or if you don't like that, try this. Mark chapter 8, then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And you know, I know, that right around the globe, Christians are suffering for their faith. Iraq, Syria, right around the globe. And while we're not likely to suffer martyrdom in this country, some kind of persecution or low-grade inconvenience is coming our way. So, back to the question, the identity number one. Have you sorted out your identity yet? Let me put it another way, slightly more challenging. Do the people you spend time with even know that you're a follower of Christ? I put it to you another way. I was once asked this question. If all Christians were to be arrested, would there be enough evidence against you to get you arrested? It's a very perverse question, but it makes you think for a, a second or two. And I was wondering whether one of the reasons that we hold back, perhaps, from issuing invitations to guest events, such as our carol services in a couple of weeks' time, and I mean that because we have our carol services unseasonably early, and I'm once wondering if one of the reasons that invitations sit at the back of a church is simply we're too shy to break cover as a Christian. Same with the Alpha course. You know, do we hold back from inviting our friends because we're just not quite sure we want to be that out there? Well, if you make the decision, just the decision privately, once you make this decision, life becomes so much more straightforward, so much more. Of course, there's another reason we might hold back, is suppose I let them know in the office that I'm a Christian, suppose I let them know in the college that I'm a Christian, suppose I let them know at home that I'm a Christian, I'm gonna have to live up to it. They'll look at me the next day and say, you're not behaving like one. 
And that's another good reason for breaking cover, so that you do start behaving like one. Well, we'll move on. That's the first point, a decision. A decision that you will nail your colors to the cross, as it were. Not to the mask, but to the cross. Secondly, second thing, let's move on. Moses saw through the glamour of glitter. Can you? A realization, verse 24, he chose to be mistreated rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. And that's very interesting because the pleasures of sin are short-lived indeed. It wasn't, it wasn't that life within the palace presumably was unenjoyable. Being pampered sounds pleasurable enough. It's a, there's a better way of living. There's a more fulfilling way of living. Nowhere in the scriptures are we told that sin isn't fun. It has to be or people wouldn't do it. But it's a short-term pleasure. And what Moses was given to see by the Holy Spirit in his life is that life in Pharaoh's palace would have choked him. A lifestyle like this was going to be crushing, ultimately. The satisfaction would be short-term. In fact, pure pleasure and hankering after that, it's more like an anesthetic to life's problems and challenges than it is to living a fulfilled life. But what exactly do you think the writer of Hebrews meant when he said that Moses turned away from the pleasures of sin in the palace? What do you think was going on in the palace that was so sinful? And rather than pinpointing one action, I want to just say, because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about this, what sin really is, what's at the heart of this technical word sin, is something very, very simple indeed. And it's something we're all experts at. And it's something we all have done and will be tempted to do time and again. It's simply this, putting ourselves at the center of the universe. That's all it is. Arranging the world about you to please you. So in my case, it's simply living to please Rupert. Sort of, you know, my wish list might be, my will be done, my kingdom come. Baby, may things be arranged for my ease, my satisfaction, my urges. And all of us know this territory. Because frankly, it's, it's a theme tune of the human race. I did it my way. We've all sung that tune. We, well, mentally anyway. Yes, <laughs> hopefully not physically. Uh, and there are consequences. There are consequences of living life like this, arranging the world around you to suit your purposes. And one of them is it kills you. And it kills you because a life arranged around pleasing yourself will put a great distance between you and God. An abundant life, life to the full, will remain just out of reach. Many years ago, I watched a film called Educating Rita. It's quite a good film, in my opinion, about someone who is going through education, and they're a mature student in age, and in this particular part of the film, they're sitting in a pub with a lot of young students, and there's a lot of noise and revelry going on, and everyone seems to be having a good time. 
and they're singing in the pub. And then suddenly the camera zooms in on this student, Rita. And she appears, if my memory is right, she appears to be crying. She looks very unhappy. And you just hear her say very, very quietly to herself, there's got to be a better song to sing than this. And I thought that captured brilliantly. She's right. There's a lot better song to sing than the songs they were singing in the pub. When God connects with you, you suddenly know there's a better way of doing life. There's a better way of ordering life. And for many of us in this building, this church tonight, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And you know there was a moment in your life when you decided to invite Jesus to be your king. You know that there was a moment when you said, I'm going to put you on the throne, and from here on, I'm going to say, my Lord and my God, and I'm going to pray thy will be done and I'm going to say things like speak Lord your servant is listening as opposed to listen Lord your servant is talking and you'll know that from time to time the prompting of the Holy Spirit will just have come to you to take the narrow path it just happens it always happens to Christ followers because that's the path Jesus has chosen for us he's warned us it's narrow there are few people on it but it leads to eternal life your will be done. Can you imagine, I can, the competing voices in Moses' head? I imagine this kind of thought went into his head when he was living in Pharaoh's palace. Stay put. Keep your head down. You've got it made in this place. Look, no one's making any great demands upon you. All you've got to do is take it one day at a time. Things are going well enough. Nothing dramatic needs to happen. Just don't rock the boat. And if you get itchy feet, just take a trip to see the pyramids and get some travel under your belt and come back safe and carry on. But that's not what he said to himself. What he said really was something like this. If I stay here, an Israelite in Egyptian clothing, I'm going to become mummified. I can't live life like this. I'd rather worship in the wilderness than be pampered in the palace. So let me just ask you is that the kind of choice you're making from day to day can you see through the glamour and the glitz because that will never fulfill you and do you aspire and ask the Holy Spirit to lead you in God's ways instead because that will fulfill you we know from history what happens because of Moses' obedience we know the life that God dealt out to him as it was he walked step by step but remember this as he took his first steps away from the palace, he had no way of knowing how life would pan out. And the next number of years, as he just walked, getting bored, I'm sure, day after day after day, around the mountain, looking after the sheep, waiting for God's action. I bet he thought, have I made a bad choice here? Because God doesn't promise fireworks on day three. But it's obedience he's looking for. So that's a choice. And the third choice is this. He looked ahead to his reward. Verse 26. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. And following on from the last decision, it goes like this really. Don't focus on the pleasures you've left behind. Look forward to the treasures you will be enjoying. Do you do that? 
Are you enjoying in advance the treasures, the rewards that God has for you? And my experience of talking to many, many followers of Jesus is, frankly, this is for many unexplored territory. They've got very little idea of rewards that they should be banking on and enjoying right now. And whenever I've taught on this subject, I'm nearly always met by um, people at the back who try and suss out whether I believe that we're saved by grace and they want to have a little argument. So just to protect myself from this conversation, I'm going to tell you I do understand what you mean. And you're not wrong. Our salvation, our God's gift of salvation to you and to me, that is a gift. You don't earn it. It's offered to you as a freebie because God is so generous. And uh, all we have to do is repent and believe and we're given eternal life. And that's terrific. I certainly believe that. That's the best news in the world. Praise the Lord. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. You're not saved by works. But you will be rewarded for your works. There is a judgment that awaits us. And this comes as a surprise to people but it's biblical and it's scriptural. And Jesus himself talks about it. And uh, if you like a rather inadequate illustration, it's rather like this. If you go to the theater, you have an entry ticket, and that gets you into the theater, but you have a seat number, and that decides on the ticket that you carry. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you have an entry ticket into heaven. But your seat number will be determined on any number of things, and you will be rewarded. And why this is so important is just the same as why it was so important to Moses. He looked forward to the reward. Why it was so important to Jesus. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That wasn't the joy of being on the cross. It was the reward afterwards. But it's because we'll never endure, you and I will never endure in the Christian walk unless we know about the rewards in heaven and they're enjoying them in advance. Let me give you some, some inkling into the kind of things that get rewarded. There's a reward for the persecuted. If you're persecuted in this life, Jesus will reward you in the next life, Matthew 5:11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. That's the principle I'm talking about to a T. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Jump for joy now about what you will receive then. Don't you think this makes a great deal of sense? How otherwise could we possibly, could the God of justice possibly put up with his followers being so persecuted in so many parts of the world. They have a huge reward coming. More pedestrian perhaps, but equally true, God promises a reward for faithfulness, for faithfulness, for integrity to Christ. To the Colossians, Paul writes, slaves obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it's the Lord Christ you're serving. Now we may not have slaves today, but don't we know that some people's toil and labor 
is vastly under-rewarded in this life. Uh, that people are heroic. In, the person I had lunch today with, with today, our preacher of this morning. In recent years, he's taken his father into his house in his 90s. His father can no longer move in any way. He's totally reliant on care and care from his son and his daughter-in-law. They won't be paid for this caring, but they will be rewarded for it. Rewards that God offers us for our secret acts of godliness. This is a great principle in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus himself highlights specific areas, four of them. Praying, when you pray in secret, he says he will reward you. When you give, that's not just money, it might be time. When you give, when you forgive, when you fast. Jesus says all these things, all these things, particularly if they're done in secret, will be rewarded by your heavenly Father who sees what you do in secret. And if you want to follow up this theme, I suggest you do a little Bible study in a concordance. Just look up the word crown and prize and reward, and you will start to see a whole theme open up to you. Well, this is what Moses did. This is what Moses did. He lived for the reward. He didn't live for the promised land. He lived for the land beyond the promise. And the greatest reward, let me just share you this with you because I want you to know it. The, this is the greatest reward that will happen to any of us. At the end of your days, if you live like, life like this, there will come a moment when you're face to face, eyeball to eyeball with the living God. And he will say, well done my good and faithful servant. And I just want you to know, you know, at that moment you will know that every decision you made like this were great decisions. Because I don't know about you, but whenever my parents, on the few occasions that they said, well done, I felt so good. But that's nothing compared to when our Heavenly Father says, well done. That day's worth aspiring to and working towards. And the last point, because I must bring this towards a close, is the fourth decision that Moses made. Wait for it. He faithed the future. Ha ha ha. He faithed, F-A-I-T-H-E-D. He faithed the future. If you look at this little passage in Hebrews that we had read, it comes again and again and again. By faith he did this, by faith he did this. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land when all the Egyptians drowned. By faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn wouldn't touch the firstborn of Israel. And the point that's being made here is this is a lifelong process. This is a lifelong process. I find it interesting that actually it happened to Moses even, even in his early months. His parents faithed him. They pushed out, do you remember in the Moses basket, they pushed him out into the river Nile and just watched, waited and saw, believing and trusting God for his future. And I sometimes think this word faith is a bit slippery. 
And maybe it's easier for us to understand just to put the word trust in there. They trusted God again and again and again. Our lifetime's walk with God is meant to be like this. This is the whole point of how God wants to see us live life. Trust, trust, trust. And that's so challenging because it's like deciding that you're going to be out of your depth every day. We know the difference if you've been swimming in the sea in a swimming pool. You know the moment when you just go out of your depth. And that's, what it's, that's the walk, the faith walk that Moses lives out. Trusting, trusting, trusting. So again, a little question for you, for us. What are the areas of our lives that we know we're, we're trusting God in now? Where we're powerless, where our feet just are not on the bottom. Where we're out of our depth. And they will come thick and fast. They can be just little moments when you decide to break cover and answer things honestly. Let me give you an example. I was thinking this kind of matches coming clean as a Christian and just doing this walk of faith. Someone told me a few years ago about a true story of a man called Mr. Gibson who worked in Selfridges in the time of Gordon Selfridge. I don't know much about Gordon Selfridge, but from what I do know, he was an irascible man and very powerful and quite a tyrant. And in those days, it wasn't such a, a huge empire that he was untouchable. He was in the office, and one day, Mr. Gibson, who was just a clerk, uh, was in the office too, and the phone rang. And uh, he picked up the phone, Mr. Gibson did, and he could be heard to say, um, yes, hello, this is Selfridge. And Gordon Selfridge was standing there, and he said, I'm out, I'm out. And uh, Gibson said, you want to speak to Mr. Selfridge? Certainly, he's right here, and handed the phone. Well, at the end, you know, there was quite an atmosphere in the office, and at the end, everyone watched to see the fireworks that were bound to come, and the fireworks did come. And uh, poor Mr. Gibson was given the most enormous rocket. But he looked up calmly and serenely, and he said, apparently, if I can lie for you, I can lie to you. And that was the end of the conversation. From that moment onwards, apparently, whenever there was a particularly difficult situation in the boardroom, Mr. Selfridge would say, call for Mr. Gibson. And Mr. Gibson would come in, and then they'd put the situation to him, and he'd say, what Mr. Gibson thinks, I think. Well, I'm not sure that every story ends as happily as that. But have you, there will come a time, I'm sure, not, not in years, there will come a time this week, when you'll have a little window of opportunity. It could be tomorrow. Someone says, did you have a nice night last night? And you have a chance to completely duck the idea of mentioning that you were at a place of worship or to let them know something. And you just have a nanosecond. Or you have a chance to lie or to speak the truth. Or you have a chance to be kind or not to be kind. Or you have a chance to notice something or not to notice. These things, these things uh, they all add up but it'll involve a life of trust, a life of trust. Let me end with um, one of my favorite stories because I think it might encourage you. I, I love the story that R.T. Kendall tells about uh, a missionary who went abroad to Africa and he was there for many, 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 many years, faithfully serving God. And the day came when his 
uh, time of service was over and he was to return. And he, he lived in America and so he, he got on a, some kind of a, a liner and he returned to New York. Hadn't been there for 25 years, he was returning. And it just happened that on his liner, traveling obviously in a completely different part of a boat, was the President of the United States, who had spent four days game hunting in Africa. When they got off the boat, the President was fated and there was kind of quite a lot of fuss about him. There was a band playing and if it wasn't a ticker tape parade, there were certainly people noticed. And the central man in our story, the hero of our story, the little missionary chap, got off the boat with his two suitcases and he had been vain enough, he thought, that there might at least be somebody there to meet him. But there wasn't. So he booked himself into some kind of accommodation. And that night he got down on his knees and he poured out his heart to God. He just poured out his heart, the disappointment and the sadness and the anguish that he felt. And he said, you know, I just don't get it, Lord. I go to Africa, I spent over 25 years there being obedient to you, serving you. The president goes for four days to shoot game and then he comes home and look what he gets and look what I get. And the missionary man felt that he heard God say to him, ah, but that's the point. You've not come home yet. You've not come home yet. Friends, to live a life like this is very costly, very, very rewarding, but even more rewarding when God sees you and calls you home. Let's pray. I had a feeling as I was praying about this earlier tonight that some of us might just need to ask God to hose us down in a sense of we've picked up stuff along the way. Like sometimes you see in natural history um, films, you see something like a whale and it's picked up various kind of life, just clinging onto it, holding it back, though it probably doesn't know. And we might just have allowed things to grow on us which might be choking our walk with God. And if that's what you feel, don't condemn yourself, but hear it like a word of grace that God is saying, look, get shot of this stuff. You've been loaded down by the wrong stuff. Walk free. Don't get trapped. Walk free. Discover the freedom of being identified as with the people of God. Walk free from the trap of being seduced by the pleasures of sin. Walk free from trying to get your reward in this world and start banking on my generosity later. And walk free from trying to be in control. Let me be in control. Trust me for a bit. Father, these things are so easy to say, but we want to do them. Thank you that the writer to the Hebrews has done the hard work for us. He's pinpointed decisions that would set us free. Please guide us in your ways. Give us a will to